0: Hi, and thanks for listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel on the New Books network. I'm your host David Gottlieb, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Mendes-Flohr, on the verge of retirement from his position as Dorothy Grant McClear Professor of Modern Jewish History and Thought at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Our subject is Professor Mendes-Flohr's Martin Buber, A Life of Faith and Descent published earlier this year by Yale University Press as part of its Jewish Lives series. Um, I am speaking with Professor Mendes Flor in the uh, lofty and somewhat echoey halls of Swift Hall, the site of the University of Chicago Divinity School. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I should note that Professor Mendes Flor was my dissertation advisor here at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Professor Mendes Flor, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome.
1: I should Uh, underscore that Um, my interviewer, or interlocutor, David Gottlieb, was a superb and very uh, attentive uh, and studious and thoughtful exemplary doctoral student. You are far too kind.
0: (laughs) Um, So, Professor Mendes-Flor, you quote Buber as saying that if one were to write his biography, it should focus on his thought. Uh, Your book takes us along the sweeping dual arcs of Buber's intellectual development and his life experience and it shows us not only his vast influence on a number of intellectual fields such as translation, political philosophy, philosophical anthropology, sociology, theology, and so on, but in political realms such as uh, political Zionism, Arab-Jewish relations, and more. Your research is meticulous and extremely wide-ranging. Uh, my first question for you in, uh, in the writing and research of, of the subject of a person who so greatly influenced 20th century uh, religious and intellectual endeavor is how did you go about researching this? What sources did you consult? And, and were you able to access sources that were not prior to that widely available?
1: Yes. First, I'd like to say something about uh, the statement Buber uh, felt that we should just focus on his thought. On the other hand, he also acknowledged that he was a complex person, and his thought reflects that complexity. As one says, every text has a context. Uh, the challenge of, of a biographer is to weave the context in the, in the text, not to be reductionist, and um, not to over-psychologize, uh, which um, I don't have that prerogative. Although of course I have impl- <laughs> I do suggest some <laughs> psychological ground for Buber's thought um, and that is based on what he writes he writes also my knowledge of uh, of his family I didn't know Buber personally, but I was very close to some of his his more intimate friends and later uh, to Buber's son, with whom I had a very special relationship. Uh, that lasted that last, last last fifteen years of his son's life, um, and indeed, every practically every day, I had what the Germans called Abendbrot with uh, Raphael Buber. Abendbrot is like four o'clock tea, but virtually every day, and we he sort of adopted me as his son. Certainly, we were very close, and in our conversations, which dealt with, of course, his father's legacy, but also dealt with his father's relationship to him, Raphael, and his sister, um, um, and more intimate details. So I have a certain familiarity with Buber, although I never knew him directly, but I knew the family well, very well. Um, not only Raphael, but his, his children, his daughters, and ultimately his gran- and grandchildren, um, with whom I'm still in contact.
0: Were, were you able, through your friendship with Raphael or through other means, um, uh, to gain access to materials that others had never seen.
1: Yes, um, indeed, documents, as you, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're, that's the reference, but also to intimate details about the dynamics of the family and their relationships. Um, and much of this course reflects a certain, like every human relation, family relationship, certain ambivalence or ambiguity, um, which gave me a greater insight into the person, um, who bore the name Martin Mordechai Buber. My familiarity with Buber goes back to my dissertation, um, doctoral dissertation, and I wrote it under the supervision of one of Buber's closest uh, uh, disciples. And so I've been living with Buber, so to speak, um, uh, for, well, sounds like you know, 60 years. <laughs> um, indeed, Um and uh, some basic sense, uh, Buber and I have had a dialogue, if you wish to put it that way, over those those six de- decades, um, and through Buber uh, the dialogue with um, the world which he sought to come to terms with um, the reality, of torture, the tortured, often tortured reality of, of Jewry in the, the 20th century, um, the tortured reality of that marked his life, uh, and I begin with that, as you perhaps recall.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very interested as long as we're talking about the dynamics of Buber's family that uh, though you do um, uh, in a very disciplined way avoid psychologizing, you note the profound impact uh, on him of, uh, of the sudden departure of his mother at a very young age. And you come back to that at certain points through the book. If one may be allowed to uh, to consider this as an influence on his life and thought, how did it influence him? Yes, certainly.
1: Uh, just to inform your listeners um, or the audience, um, when Buber was uh, all of three years old, his mother suddenly uh, left, left the home um, without bidding goodbye. He ran to the window, uh huge fence, French window as he uh, that was typical of that part of the, uh, Vienna where they were living. And she never turned around to acknowledge his desperate attempt to make contact with her. And that remained true uh, throughout his life. To the very end of his life, in at the age of 87, he recalled the fact that his mother was absent. She didn't die. She just dis- disappeared and left a huge, huge hole and was never really, whole hole is perhaps the word. Well, a clue, sense of abandonment never really left him. And it perhaps explains why human relationships were so crucial to him. Um, um, Not just what we call friendships, certainly not in the American sense that compels or even the Israeli (laughs) understanding, but um, relationships of of perduring and enduring trust. Um, And if I understood uh, his book, I and Thou, which it's translated in a very, uh, how would you say, um, almost ecclesiastical sense of thou. In German it's the, the personal pronoun of du, w- which is reserved for the most intimate relationships. Um, and it was very difficult to maintain those, even if one would say du, but the genuine existential ground of, of a mutual trust. Um, and then I s- un- somehow understand to be um, the late motif of his life
0: indeed you, you you note and do a wonderful job of chronicling um, the series of deeply felt and long lasting relationships he had throughout his life, not least of course with uh, his wife Paula and the mother of his children, but with Gustav Landauer and Franz Rosenzweig and others if there is a pattern to these relationships um. What is that pattern? Yeah.
1: You know, in German, you make a distinction between the the, the more intimate pronoun, uh, in, uh, in the um, second-person pronoun, you, as we say in English, and the more per, uh, formal, Z. You know, Buber and his, and his wife was very hesitant, it was very difficult for him to reach uh, a plateau of... If you wish, interpersonal, prato and trust, of uh, of a due relationship of a the personal pronoun, um, simple pronoun, which is translated as thou, or somehow to capture the theological dimension, because when we turn to God, I've always referred to, in the Jewish tradition, as the King of the universe, the the sovereign of the universe, we turn to God with the intimate pronoun, do. Uh, so to translate, I one wanted to capture that. Um, <laughs> Buber and Rosenzweig, you mentioned, were certainly in any um, inception that we have a friendship, very close. Um, they worked together uh, on various projects. Their families were uh, intimate with one another, and yet they remained seven years uh, on the more formal level when they would address one another as Z. And at one crucial moment, Rosenzweig was a very sick man, inadvertently, but perhaps not inadvertently, addressed Buber with the more intimate pronoun do, and then he immediately apologized. Um, but Buber said, after seven years, we are perhaps indeed ready to address one another Purdue, with this more intimate uh, pronoun. Um, ben Rosenzweig accepted that and then added, but in my heart, I will re- continue to say Z out of respect. Um, but it, ex- it indicated that they developed trust. Um, I often use a, an image borrowed from uh, Karl Jaspers. Karl Jaspers says every human being, in order to protect himself, herself, develops sort of a shell. Uh, In German, the shell is called a Gehäuse, like a house in which you protect yourself. And very reluctantly would you exit that shell. And as soon as there's a shadow of threat, you withdraw. But within this house, this Gehäuse, you're not fully exposed or present to the world. Um, It takes a great deal of trust to exit that shell um, and not feel threatened by the other. That's the heart of, of, I believe, of of, uh, the I-thou relationships.
0: Uh, I I wanted to ask you um, with regard to, uh, and and this bears partly on the question of the I-thou relationship, is that although Buber, it seems um, in your beautiful depiction is constantly in search of that deep dialogical connection that he remains and wishes to remain as an outsider. One of the bonds that exists between between him and Franz Rosenzweig is a distrust of the academy and a desire to avoid at almost all costs um, being sucked into the orbit of the tr- of traditional intellectual discipline, uh, and and this is captured in your title, uh, "A Life of Faith and Dissent." Now, looking at the titles in this Yale Jewish Lives series, one sees that there's always. A second part of the title, but faith and dissent, is such an interesting pairing because it 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 suggests a desire to deeply belong, but also retains some aspect of critical distance. Is that an accurate depiction uh, of his epistemology, and does it reflect part of the reason that he became particularly close colleague and collaborator of Franz Rosenzweig? Yes.
1: Just a word on uh, f- uh, faith. Uh, faith as a concept or a posture uh, undergoes a long history from, within um, the, the human odyssey. Um, in traditional Judaism, as in Islam, faith means loyalty. Um, in the modern period, captured by Kirvyar, is a leap. <laughs> you have to leap over here. Your, um, your fears, anxieties, your, if you want to use a fancy word, epistemological uh, uncertainties. Um, for Buber, it denoted trust, which is interesting because um, even friends, um, excuse me, Moses Mendelssohn, who was yet just about on the, on the threshold of the modern world, understood in his translations of the Jewish conception as trust. Of course, Buber gives it a strong existential significance. Um, God created the world behold it is good and indeed very good but if we pause, soften <laughs> riddles with um, with pain and disappointment and tragedy and yet we're to affirm the goodness of the world. That is the arch of Jewish understanding of faith but it means ultimately, as a religious concept the trust that God is ultimately uh, the ground of creation um, despite its many um, Difficulties, um, trust. But um, going back to the image of the snail, we only exit our protective curve. It could be nationalism, could even be religious faith, uh, uh, loyalty, uh, it could be titles, professor or whatever, graduate student, uh, ways we protect ourselves, the various persona, that mass that we uh, uh, enjoin in order to protect ourselves the way the way we dress, the way we talk, et cetera. We have many, many uh, strategies to protect ourselves. Um, trust allows us to really exit those, or to, to discard those um, protective coverings and postures in order to reach out to the other and to uh, allow the other to enter our reality.
0: What role did dissent play in the development of his personal and philosophical orientation. You, 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 you show him um, being an early, um, one could almost use the word, apostle of Nietzsche, who mm-hmm. wants the individual to defy arbitrary authority and define the fullest expression of self. Um, but later on, he engages in deep studies of mysticism. He's an ardent Zionist, works closely for a time with Herzl, so he moves through periods and spheres of belonging. But he often, it seemed to me in reading your biography, comes to a place of dissent, even while he maintains a desire to uphold the importance of those movements on whose edge he maintains himself. So, is dissent important to belonging and to faith? Yeah, yeah.
1: The sin may be the wrong term, but hesitation, uncertainty, skepticism. Um, he was always tentative in his, in his attachments. Um, and I didn't want to over psychologize that tentativeness, but uncertainty. It perhaps goes back to his relation, to fail, the failure of his, of his relationship to his mother. Um, if I just can uh, be a bit um, psychoanalytical. A mother's love is unconditional. Um, she may be disappointed, may <laughs> express anger, but one always returns to the mother uh, as the bastion uh, of one's life. He lacked that. Uh, he was a motherless child. And even in his first letter, which he to his wife, his future wife, um, uh, the mother of his children, um, to acknowledge her, that her love, he concludes that letter, uh, where he c- accepts her love. Now I know what I've been looking for, a mother. Strange love letter. Wow. But a mother's the, the maternal wall so solidity ground that allows one to, allows one to um, proceed in the often treacherous reality we call life. Um, and to the very end of his life, he regarded himself as a levelless. child.
0: Uh, this is interesting, too, partly because it reflects uh, how he how he views the role of women in the development of the Zionist project. I think particularly of the lectures he del- delivers to the Bar Kochba group in Prague early on in his life, in which he addresses women specifically but sort of, um, I, I want to say, confines their role to uh, maternal the maternal task of not only giving birth to the nation, but of, but of um, nourishing the home. Is, is that an accurate depiction, and how does his view of women's role in the Zionist project develop later on?
1: That's a very fine question. You should have told me beforehand so I could prepare you a more <laughs> a more uh, systematic <laughs> and nuanced uh, response. Um, but um, woman, the image of the woman, the reality of the woman's l- um, love, which was in some basic sense absent because of his disappearance, not only the disappearance of the mother, but she f- refused to acknowledge his cry, Mama. And didn't turn around. He met her met her once, very much later in his life, where he introduced his children to her, and she couldn't look at her in the eyes. Couldn't. He self betrayed. Um, and if, amongst the very last things he did, or conversations that we have of his, is this, he asked a psychoanalyst, who um, whom he met, and um, what's the source of human anxiety? And she gave a Freudian response, and he said, well, no, I had a miserable childhood. I don't think that can explain uh, the fundamental um, agony, or that I have, or uncertainty, existential uncertainty, that has defined my life. And then she, somehow, the psychoanalyst said, "Well, perhaps in a more basic sense, is not to belong." Yes, I don't belong. He always saw himself as an outsider. Which one, if wishes to be speculative, goes back to the fact that he lacked that sense of um, of maternal home, if you could put it that way, this, this 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 certitude that there's always a mother from whose breast you can um, seek sustenance that he lacked, and therefore relationships become increasingly important. He slowly develops uh, an understanding that um, the heartbeat of of a f- fulfilled life is our relationships. Um, someone just brought to my attention um, a, uh, a letter that Saul Benman wrote to a 14 year old boy whose father passed away, uh, and the letter is beautifully letter and it says, "Your father he tells a young man of fourteen understood the importance of relationships. he invested everything in friendship. Um, and the cultivation, nurturance of friendship. Um, all else is somehow secondary. Fame, attainment, those are all pro- protective, so to speak. <laughs> Necessary, of course, to make one one's way in life. We actually, we found a poem of Boopers. He said, fame, an 86-year-old man, he died at 87. Oh, no, he, would like, he would often write little poems. Uh, very simple. I can translate it. Fame is... An odd thing, but it does provide some <laughs> <laughs> some gratification. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was obviously okay. ironic. He was a very famous man. Yeah. He had a very noble countenance. But even that has a story. Um, at birth, there was a, uh, a, a um, an, sort of an accident in which the forceps for for what do you call forceps? Forceps. Forceps. Yes. Forgive me. Twisted a lower lip. And he, as a child, he always had a, 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 a distorted lip, and somewhat of a distorted speech. As soon as he was able to grow a, a, a mustache, he did that. It didn't quite do the trick, so he did a beard uh, to cover up the uh, this deformity. Um, the dip wasn't meant to project an image of being a prophet. But later on, he was so regarded. He said, well, why not?
0: <laughs> um, How, skipping a little bit in his uh, biography, uh, it, it, it seems as though uh, when uh, national socialism comes to power in Germany, his wife Paula almost immediately apprehends the severity of the existential challenge to jewish life in germany and in europe and buber doesn't buber thinks it's a transitional or transitory phase that can be uh, overcome especially if the germanness of the jewish population is made clear in germany but he comes to understand nazism as representing an assault not only on the jewish community but on the life of the spirit how does this become clear to him, and what does he do about it?
1: Very well. Yuba. I must compliment you before your radio audience that you're a good reader. <laughs> Thank you. You taught me well. Uh, it's true. Uh, um, he, um, His wife, who was not born a Jew, and she eventually converted, um, and she had a greater atten- attentiveness to the German spirit and, and its wiles, and perhaps its... Um, um Its inclination to uh, to barbarity he refused to see that initially um, and put great trust in the, the um, in in the, uh, the republic and in democracy um, but it, within a few months he realized that that um, indeed um, that vision that hope that confidence. Um, was shattered. Um Boomer had an existential commitment, though, to as many Je- uh, Jews to the, um, the efficacy of rational uh, discourse uh, to the Enlightenment. Should the Enlightenment um, um, mm-hmm. fail us, then uh, to put it in, in American language, then we're in trouble. <laughs> um, and he refused to do that. Even when he uh, re- uh, eventually confronted the, uh, the conflict, the seemingly intractable conflict uh, between the uh, Zionist settlement in Palestine and the Arabs, um, he ultimately felt obliged to affirm yeah. um, the vision of book of Genesis God created the world, behold, it is good and deed. Very good. That is a matter of faith. So that's the title of the book, is, uh, A Life of Faith and Descent. But um, a faith which is not naive, uh, but faith that wishes to exit the shell that we create as individuals and as in peoples, nations, political formations, um, in order to live a life of, of faith, trust, that the world is ultimately good. Um, not a naive affirmation of the world is good, but accept the, um, the challenge. If I may just allow me, I recently published, forgive me for doing that way, but an article on, um, on Gnostic anxieties. In the wake of the First World War, particularly in Germany, where everything collapsed, there was a, a mock retreat from the Enlightenment and this vision of humanity, um, and many scholars, in the wake of the First World Wars, among some very great, significant liberal thinkers, like such as Adolf von Hamann, um, who was considered the liberal Christian theologian, um, turned to Gnosticism. Gnosticism suggests that it's a school of thought, many different branches, but it's, generally speaking, has some characteristics. The world we live in um, is inherently awful. Uh, and ultimately, it's not where we human beings, as spiritual, destined to be spiritual beings, belong. Um, so, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge. We know it from the word agnostic, I don't know. But Gnosis means sort of arcane knowledge, uh, salvific knowledge that we are able to uh, grasp that knowledge, attain that knowledge. We free our souls from the incarceration in this material world, which is inherently compromises our dignity. Um, and that also had its political correlation. Um, Buber and many other Jewish thinkers, but particularly Buber, was wary of a Gnostic turn. He understood the temptation, the, um, but we must resist Gnosticism uh, and affirm the world of creation. Um, towards the end of the Weimar v- Republic, Buber, together with silly minded Christian thinkers, established a book, uh, excuse me, a journal called Kreatur, the Core Creatures. Uh, creatures with a responsibility to assure that this is God's world, God's creation. Um, And that remained a motif in Bua's life. Despite all the tragedy and disappointments that that often that we are betrayed by our families, in this case his mother, uh, we have to affirm
0: life. Um, uh, uh, Somewhat related to that, there's so much in this book that I wanted to cover and it would be fun to interview you for three hours, but our our listeners would abandon us, but um, related to that is, uh, in my mind at least, is the meeting that uh, that is facilitated in which in which Buber eagerly participates in the in the mid late nineteen fifties I believe with the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, uh, and uh, as. It, it seems as though in your book, as I recall, you suggest that part of the philosophical turn represented by Heidegger is a reaction against uh, or to the massive destruction and dislocation of World War I and the view uh, that Buber maintains of the essence of the dialogical nature and purpose of relationship as represented in language is something that Heidegger abandons and that Heidegger undermines the humanistic, philosophical tradition of continental philosophy. But the fact that they even meet is rather astonishing and his friends took him to task for that. What was the significance of that meeting with Martin Heidegger and what what, if any lasting effect did it have on on Buber's view of Heidegger's philosophy?
1: Again, that will require a, <laughs> a seminar in and of itself on a variety of levels, uh, philosophical as well as existential and perhaps even psychological, because Heidegger was known to have initially endorsed Nazism. And we even have uh, witnesses that even at the end of the war, Heidegger still had in his lapel a swastika. Um, and that raises questions whether he, although uh, he had ultimately, um, some reservations about Hitler, um, but the the Nazi vision somehow still spoke to him. So why would a a good Jewish boy, (laughs) even as he aged, (laughs) seek to have a relationship, even an intellectual relationship, with Heidegger? Of course, it's not only true of of Buber and Hanaranth and others. Heidegger seemed to establish a whole new way of understanding the human journey, um, and in a sense brought us back to questions of ontology as opposed to epistemology, which uh, um, means how we know the world, how we are able to organize the world in its material uh, objective sense, is this a table or is this a mic, are these glasses which I'm wearing, as opposed to your earmuffs, which I, <laughs> the, 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 the uh, earphones that you're wearing. Um, um, and of course epistology became very important in the sense that we, we should not just be baffled by the world, but with the world as a structure, and if we're able to understand the structure, we can move it ahead and, and redesign certain features such to the betterment of humankind um, but eclipse of that and what is eclipsed by that uh, uh, almost singular focus on epistemology was the questions of the meaning of life, and those questions became more poignant particularly pointing to the collapse of the, what seemed to be the collapse of the Enlightenment and the liberal project in the wake of the First World War, um, and that is under, understood as a return to ontology: what is the nature of human being? Um, and that was Heidegger's question, and it was um, and Buber, as many of his generation, appreciated that that turn. Although Buber was not very satisfied by Heidegger's approach to the answering that question. Um, and turn to uh, what we call philosophical anthropology. What is a human being? Uh, and all the permutations of what it means to be a human being or to give expression to our humanity, which uh, contradicted Heidegger's approach without going into the details. But um, after the war, uh, the opportunity arose to meet with Heidegger and to discuss the issues of language, speech, is language the only vehicle in which we relate to one another? And how? Uh, and they did meet in a, in a clandestine fashion, secretly, um, but it was Buber's initiative, um, which Heidegger accepted. Um, and that just baffles us. Um, but Buber wanted to probe, um, so it seems, Heidegger, why he turned to Nazism to address these questions or to deal with these questions. Um, and it seemed that he eventually felt that heidegger was not prepared to dis- make that discussion uh, and uh, basically withdrew um, nevertheless reads leads leads leaves the, the question of why Buber was so crucial or so crucial for buber to um, to meet with heidegger mm-hmm. and it, and to redress address and to redress these questions um, but heidegger's philosophy had a a magical, if you wish, <laughs> pull on a whole generation, mm-hmm. All, also Jewish, particularly Jewish figures. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but Buber was not one.
1: N- no, but he, he he appreciated the questions of Heidegger, and he kept on returning to the to the questions of Heidegger, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I hope Buber give focus to his own quest for to understand what is human being.
0: Mm. Uh. Buber emigrates to Palestine in 1938. He becomes a professor uh, at Hebrew University, and he uh, immediately sees uh, the massive problem of how the Zionist project is approaching the Arab population, and he becomes somewhat of a, of a um, well, it's, not a, it's an understatement to say he becomes a controversial figure because he urges rapprochement and community building um, with the Arab community in Palestine. How does that, um, and this seems consistent with his desire for fully meeting the other, mm-hmm. how does this affect how he is seen in Palestine in the emerging state of Israel? this
1: yeah. suppose even before he emigrated to Palestine, he had um, misgivings about certain... Direction that the Zionist movement had taken it also goes back to his relationship um, to Herzl. Uh, Zionism is a code of many colors, such as Judaism <laughs> and human life in general, but Zionism had many colors, and he was associated with uh, the Zionism that was less concerned with political um, uh, advancement of Jewish needs, particularly as focused on attaining uh, a sovereign. Um, Political um, home uh, initially anywhere, but ultimately in, in Palestine. And it's known as political Zionism. He was never really a follower uh, of political Zionism. What was roughly called cultural Zionism. Zionism is a way of, of of renewing Judaism, such that it addresses the modern condition, the way we now think about the world, and, and the like. We have a much more universal, cosmopolitan compass to what, what we consider to be uh, thought and human relationships. Um, sometimes it's called spiritual Zionism, um, and within that there are all sorts of uh, uh, configurations. But Buber was basically a spiritual Zionist, uh, wary of political Zionism, it was never his his concern, uh, and he was wary uh, of um, the entrapments of uh, of what we ultimately call realpolitik, um, using the ruthlessness and often deceits uh, to attain political goals. Um, and he felt that that approach can also vitiate the more spiritual um, um, ambition, ambition might be the wrong word, visions of Zionism, um, which he remained more or less attuned to with uh, constantly revising his understanding of what the spiritual renewal would be um and the great test of that was the conflict with the Palestinians. the Palestinians were living in Palestine it almost sounds like a tautology but they were there were Arabs living in Palestine uh, uh, for centuries um, uh, and they were the majority population of the of the, of the British mandate um, the mandate being what Britain was Great Britain was granted uh, could, um, tutelage of an area known as Palestine after the First World War granted by Western powers not with the consent of the local population uh, and within that context the British gave um, uh, a certain mandate to design this organization not for not sovereignty but establish a homeland however that may be defined within Palestine much to the chagrin of of course the local population Buber understood that chagrin um, uh, which Britain and the Zionist leadership sought to ignore. Um, and, but we said we can't on a variety of, politically we can't, and also humanly, we can't ignore the, the fact that there is a Palestinian population and that, at least at that time, those, well up until the establishment state of Israel, they were the majority population living there in the land for centuries. Not as uh, uh, outsiders, not as foreigners, but in indigenous population. Um, the conflict, to to say this in broad terms, uh, a political conflict, and thus ultimately a military conflict, with the Palestinians, um, even given the exigencies of the Holocaust, uh, the uh, the Nazism, um, would only um, emasculate the fame, undermine the spiritual... um, objectives, if you wish, or visions of Zionism. Um, Buber was not opposed to Jewish settlement in Palestine, but it should be in a way which does not undermine or challenge Palestinian sensibilities and rights. And that was a very difficult formula, of course. <laughs> um,
0: How should we read Buber today? What, in, a, in, a, in an era of resurgent nationalism and divisions between individuals and community. Uh, what is his writing telling us today? And if you were to send us to particular works of his, which works would you suggest? Right.
1: I think it would be a, a disservice to, to Buber and to ourselves if we read Buber as hagiographically as, as a saint. He um, he himself went through many, many revisions. Um, and constantly revised his understanding of himself and others and the Zionist project. Um, but what remained, so to speak, the Star uh, was that we have to learn somehow to live with one another with dignity, um, mutual dignity. Um, and that led him to um, seek how we can do such um, he uh, urged us and even in his own writings never to think doc- in a doctrinal fashion to uh, constantly revise our, our understanding of a given situation. Buber has been compared to what we often call situational ethics. The situation determines um, how we respond. Of course, that's not quite... Well, because Buber had principles which, which were uh, independent of the situation, but they always must be adjusted to the situation, um, and that's what he calls dialogue—dialogue um, with our fellow human beings and dialogues with the situations in which we find ourselves. Um, dialogue is difficult. We can often have mis-dial- um mismeetings. We often can mis-under- misunderstand ourselves as well as on the other with whom we are engaged. But um, but dialogue is the and there is an openness to our inner cells as well as the other, um, uh, the dynamic that, that, um, that is crucial. Um, the religious aspect, where you do call it the book of uh, Life of Faith and, dialogue, uh, and, and Dissent, um, and that is the, the ultimately to affirm um, the goodness of life, the possibilities of life. Uh, Someone would ask me, what is Jewish about pure li- uh, thought, I, perhaps that is the ultimate. Um, um, you know, uh, the shape of his friend, Franz Wollsensweig, was also deeply alert to the the tragic uh, fibers or fa- texture of life, that, uh, the, difficult, uh, the difficulties we all confront with ourselves and others, um, sometimes brutal, sometimes simply a question of misunderstanding, but nonetheless... Um, Rosenzweig says at one point, what is the most hurtful thing in life is to be misperceived. <laughs> uh, and that's probably true of all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> However, uh, uh, Rosenzweig also concludes his book, The Star of Redemption, with two words. In life, um, we're not to retreat from life. Uh, or as, as we simply say, almost in a, 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 a trivial fashion, l'chaim, uh, to life. Um, with full awareness of life is the ultimate signature of life is our death um, which is obviously the great enigma and great pain but within the bounds of um, uh, of that our finitude we affirm life
0: Um. and speaking of affirming life um, you are concluding a phase of your long and extremely productive career you are um mere days away from uh, retirement from the University of Chicago. Uh, You live in Israel, um, and I wonder if you can tell us what is next for you, what other projects you're going to be working on, and what your uh, intellectual focus will be.
1: Actually, I've already been retired as of of, uh, the 31st. But prior to that, as perhaps you should have mentioned, I was a member of the Hebrew University faculty for 30 years, so I have dual retirement. In Israel, we, were, we have mandatory retirement, and in the United States, you can reach uh, uh, senility and still be a professor. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's a judgment that, that I'm, I'm senile or not, but let me just say that uh, that question was raised to a great uh, German historian, Theo Mommsen. And when he reached the age of eighty, he was asked, uh, "Professor Mumpson, will you continue to to write?" He said, "Yes, I do. I have various projects, but the question is whether I can will still learn." Um, and Hunter Rant, if I just up that comment, um, who had a very um, judgmental view of the world and of typically of fellow human beings had a notebook, liked an address book, in which he uh, wrote down the address, but uh, with comments about people. They were often brutal, harsh. But when it came to Buber, he says, what is the virtue of Buber? He, uh, he's still open-minded. He, not like all the other Yakis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he's still uh, willing to reassess what he, he thinks. Uh, that is to say, he's still able to learn. Um, and I hope I'm still able to learn. I have a lot of things I want to write, but that isn't necessarily, that's necessarily rehashing or, or, or developing things I've already been working on, but whether I still can learn. And what is, it's now six months or so that I've, I've seen no longer teach. One of the beauties of, and you can use that word, edifying beauties, if you wish, of, of teaching is that uh, in discourse with younger people or with students, one um, is challenged to rethink um, Bubhist teacher uh, Georg Simmel once asked a student on a doctoral exam, surprisingly, what it means to think. The student had prepared, you know, <laughs> text on, on Hegel and Schmegel and, and like and It was the only question he asked, what does it mean to think? Uh, and then Simmel said later on, I'll say in German, Denken tut thinking hurts, it's hard. But um, it um, I do have hope to have the courage to to go for the pain of thinking not simply rehashing or re-editing or recycling whatever I have written before um, but to think uh, with all the pain that comes from that it te- that is that it uh, that is attendant to genuine thought
0: well, you have greatly uh, enhanced our capacity to think with your, uh, which I should mention, not only through your writing, but through your uh, compassionate teaching and mentorship, too, which many of your students have spoken about. My guest today has been Paul Mendes flor uh, formerly of the Hebrew University and the University of Chicago, uh, the author of Martin Buber A Life of Faith and Descent. Professor Mendes flor thank you so much for sitting and speaking with me today. You're more than welcome, thank you.